Greetings everyone, this is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. In Chointcast 11, we meet the author of Disrupt Yourself, Whitney Johnson, who developed her proprietary framework in diagnostics after having founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen. This framework is complemented by a deep understanding of how executives create and destroy value, having spent nearly a decade as an institutional investor ranked equity analyst on Wall Street. In addition to her work as a speaker and advisor, Whitney is one of Marshall Goldsmith's original cohort of 25 for the Number 100 Coaches Project. Is a coach for Harvard Business School's executive education program, frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, is a LinkedIn influencer, and hosts the twice-monthly Disrupt Yourself podcast. Welcome to the Chointcast, Whitney. I've been wanting to connect with you for, for quite some time now. Well, thank you, Jim. I'm really happy to be here. We're going to discuss your book, Disrupt Yourself. I believe this is your second book. But uh, before we start doing that, I, I do have to ask you something. In, in the afterword of your book, Disrupt Yourself, you mentioned encountering Mandelbrot. We just don't see that every day, and it's kind of fun. How did you come across this great polymath? I'm not sure, but I suspect, and I, with a high degree of confidence, that um, when I was still investing and at the Disruptive Innovation Fund and studying behavioral investing and behavioral economics, I came across his work then. Um, because it's obviously titled The Misbehavior of Markets. So I think that's how I found it. It's it's a fascinating book. It's a little bit dense, but really, really well worth the read. My exposure to him was because of fractals and the way he looked for patterns in, in that sense. So that's that's mm -hmm. an interesting intersection. So Whitney, how do people how do people find you online? couple different ways. I think um, if you want to find me on Twitter, which is how you and I know each other, you can go to Johnson Whitney, um, all one word. You can also email me at a WJ at WhitneyJohnson.com. You can, if you would like, go to WhitneyJohnson.com backslash and down backslash a team and download the first chapter of my next book. So I think between those three um, different handles, probably pretty easy to find me. Okay, and one more one more thing before we launch into your book. What causes are, are you passionate about? What causes am I passionate about? I am passionate. Well, here's the thing. Um, I, I'm passionate about my family, my children, and I would say I'm also very passionate about, and this goes right into what we're going to talk about today, is making it safe for people to make a change in their lives. You're, you're right. It's a it's a great parenting analogy, um, at, at least. So, Absolutely. <laughs> so so we're going to focus on the book Disrupt Yourself, and I'm going to keep saying that name because people should go out and buy that book. They should also buy your prior book, Dare Dream Do, and I'm sure we'll get we'll have a chance for you to sneak in a plug about the one that you're working on, but. Disrupt Yourself is really predicated on, on E.M. Rogers' S-curve. Can you set that up for us? Sure. So, like I just said, I want to make it safe for people to change because we all know change is necessary, it's desirable, but when it feels like it's going so fast that it's happening to us, not for us, 
it can be kind of scary. And what I have learned, having co-founded an investment fund with Clayton Christensen uh, at the Harvard Business School, is that the theory of disruption that we apply to products and services, and you know from your high-tech background, um, is actually at a very high level of framework um, for managing change that begins with the individual. And so for the last five years, I've been researching and codifying a seven-point framework of personal disruption so that whether you're scaling a business or trying to get your people to be more innovative or you're just trying to manage your career, you've got a structure to do this. So the, the foundation of all of this, of the, this, this framework, is the S-curve, as you just mentioned a minute ago. And here's, here's what I found, is as we were investing, we used the S-curve. When this was developed by, or not developed, I should say popularized by E.M. Rogers in, um, in the mid-60s. And it was meant to help you figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. And so what I want all of our listeners to do is to imagine in your mind an S for just a minute and think of a product or an innovation and, and how, how it gets adopted. So at the very bottom of that S, a lot of time passes and not much adoption is taking place. But then around 10 to 15% market share, you reach this tipping point and you accelerate into hyper growth. So now we're on the steep back of the S. And then at 90% or saturation um, of the market, you uh, the growth tapers off. So top of S, again, not much is happening. Well, what I discovered as we were investing and had this really big aha is that this framework um, wasn't just about products, it was also about people, and it could help us understand the psychology of disruption. And so what do I mean by that? Well, whenever you start something new, whether you start a business, whether you start a new job, whether you start a new role, a project, whatever, it's an opportunity to disrupt. So let's go back to the S again for a second. At the very beginning, when you're first starting out, typically six months along into something, Growth is going to be really slow. That's what the S-curve tells you. Lots of time passing, not much is happening. And that's important to know because then it helps you not get discouraged. You're like, of course it's going to be slow. That's what's supposed to happen. And then after <clears throat> six months to a year, you start to accelerate. And now you're in that steep, sleek back of the S-curve. And this is the part of the curve where you're feeling increasingly competent. You know exactly what you're doing, but not so much what you're doing that you get bored. And so this is the time of great confidence and fun and engagement. Then as you approach mastery, which is the top of the curve, the plateau at the top of the curve, things will be easy. Now you know exactly what you're doing, but because they're easy, you get bored. And so now you're at this plateau, but if you don't jump to a new learning curve, this plateau becomes a precipice. So it's scary whether you jump or don't jump. And this is why it's called a dilemma. So I'll stop there and see if you have any questions. No, I like that. And one of the things that I'm curious about with, with, with the S-curve and let's say personal disruption, based on, I have some of my own observations, but it seems Getting started is hard for a lot of people that you know that are in the audience that might be thinking about trying something new. So how can how can for instance we can we tie our own personality or quirks to make to to energizing ourselves to launch an innovative idea? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's a really interesting question. Um, I thought you were going to go one direction, you went another direction. So that's fine. So I'll answer both of those questions. So once you get to the top of that learning curve, yes, it is scary for most people. But here's the thing that I would say 
is that um, we tend to think, well, should I jump to a new learning curve? Should I try something new? Is it time to change? And we tend to think, well, I'll think about all the exciting things that are going to happen for me if I don't. But most people aren't motivated by what exciting is going to happen. We're more motivated by what bad things going to happen to me if I stay where I am. And so when you get to that top of the learning curve and you know in your gut that it's time to do something new and you're just kind of scared, start ticking off in your mind, okay, this bad thing could happen and this bad thing could happen and this bad thing could happen if I stay, so I better jump. Okay, now... Continuing on to the question that I that you did go to, which is how do you use your own quirks? Well, what I would say there is you focus on your strengths, but not just your strengths, but what um, I term your distinctive strengths. And your distinctive strengths um, are things that you do well that other people around you don't. An example of what that could look like is the koala. So this cuddly little animal sleeps up to 20 hours a day, you think to yourself, how can this animal actually even survive? Well, it survives because it eats something pretty much no other animal eats, which are eucalyptus leaves because they're poisonous. And so its ability to survive on eucalyptus leaves are its distinctive strength. And so one of the things that we want to do as we're thinking about making a change, or even once we've made the change, is to be willing to say, okay, how do I play where no one else is playing? Because that's part of what disruption is, is you play where no one else is. And then how do I pair that playing where no one else is playing with something that I do uniquely well? And that's going to make it possible for you to be more successful um, climbing your current learning curve. That's fantastic. There was there was a an episode, I recall, when we were in the middle of our high-tech startup years ago, and there was a fellow service academy client, and she, she, she just saw that we were all this high tech stuff we were doing was really cool, and she thought you must be this really really big risk taker. And I'm glad I didn't have food in my mouth because I probably would have spit it out. <laughs> and I just and I said to her and I said, oh my goodness, I said I bet it looks that way. And see, you've given me a framework for thinking about that because I told her when you when you start a company from scratch, every couple months you have to you have to take another leap. And it involves crossing this risk threshold you just described. And I said, you know what? You're probably seeing us at about the, you know, number 24, number 30 risk-taking steps, but you're, you're looking at it as one step. So it looked like a big breakthrough to her, but for me it was always something that was incremental. Interesting. That's a great way to frame it. So, so, so we're moving along this disruptive path, this S-curve. How, how does curiosity or a developmental mindset aid us as we go along this disruptive path, Whitney? Hmm. Such a good question. Well, part of being willing to disrupt yourself, I mean, by definition, when you disrupt yourself, you go from the top of a curve to a bottom and so bottom of a new curve. And so there is this taking of a step back in order to grow and realizing that this is a natural part of life. You crouch before you jump, you bring your fist back before you punch. And so we think about it as being kind of obvious at some level, but at the same time, when we ourselves are taking a step back and it means some type of loss of stature or prestige, it can be somewhat terrifying because people all think they're, they all think we're absolutely out of our minds. And so the way that the developmental mindset really becomes important is that we're looking at our life not as 
ourselves being fixed in terms of our abilities, but our but we think of ourselves as the growth mindset that Carol Dweck talks about. And so that becomes very important because we then say to ourselves, okay, I'm taking a step back in order to slingshot forward. And so we have this bigger, more bird's eye view um, or perspective on our personal growth. And so I think that's where the developmental mindset really plays in and is very important when it comes to being willing to disrupt yourself. You know, that triggers a thought. My favorite chapter in your book, I'm not sure what yours is, but by far mine is chapter four called called uh, Battle Entitlement, the Innovation Killer. And you discuss the hazards of a scarcity mindset in there. And that couples, I think, to what you were just talking about. Tell us about the hazards of the scarcity mindset. You know, I have to say... Um... It's really interesting that you frame it that way because I had never framed it quite like that. So let me see if I can answer the question, but I think we might discover a thing or two as we're having the conversation. Um, so, so I think that one of the things, so let me talk about what I think entitlement is. It's, it's this belief that I exist, therefore I deserve. Um, it can show up in all sorts of ways there. Um, I think sometimes people will say, well, I'm not entitled cause I've had to work hard for everything that I have. Well, you may not be entitled in that way. Um, but you can also be entitled of like, well, this other person got this thing and I deserved it. And how come I don't have it? Therefore I'm not going to try, which is being entitled. So, so what I would say, first of all, is that we're all entitled. It's just a matter of figuring out how we're entitled. Um, I guess in terms of your question, I would say that one kind of entitlement there is, is emotional entitlement. We don't think of that, but it, it's this idea that our emotions um, or feelings take priority over everybody else's and they just don't. I mean, my feelings are important um, and they're equally as important as your feelings and your feelings are important and equally as important as mine are. And so I think that one of the ways that this entitlement comes up in the workplace and in working with people is to when we see them accomplish something, we see it as a zero sum game rather than um, and there's a scarcity. There's only enough only a certain amount. And if they get something, I don't get it. And yet when we have that approach, we, um, we're not being, um, abundant, we're being scarce. And that approach is something that really pulls us back down the curve because in order to climb the curve, we have to be able to think that there are lots of possibilities and lots of opportunities, not just for you, but also for me. That answer makes a lot of sense. When you first started describing the, this, the, the hazards, Whitney, I th one of the, I, the thoughts that came to my mind was the, enti the entitlement mindset actually can cause us to halt or stop in, in many different ways. The part that I like, and I, and I believe you mentioned that, is to me a scarcity mindset doesn't leave room for breakthroughs. I like to think of uh, J.K. Rowling where you know she created this whole concept of a Harry Potter world out of whole cloth. But the scarcity mindset doesn't seem to want to allow room for spectacular creativity to come forward. And right. it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's restrictive in that sense. Yeah, that's okay. I love how you said that. So a, a scarcity mindset, there's a, there's a clutching, right? A clutching and a grasping and there's not enough. And, um, and so if, you, if we bring this back to the learning curve or the S curve, as you're climbing that curve, you think to yourself, well, 
Um, my margins are expanding and um, I our revenue is growing. So I'm just going to g- grab on to what I have, um, not wanting to look at, around at what I could do differently in order to make it even better. I just want to hold on to what I have and start to sort of hoard, hoard cash, hoard talent rather than realizing that there is plenty and, and, and even, you know, some to spare. Very good. Now you cited Adam Morgan and Mark Barden's six step process for harnessing constraints. And you also say that can help us focus. Tell us how that works. Okay. So it's a great, it's a terrific book. Um, I, I highly recommend it. And just a quick couple of snippets around that is, um, they, they talk about, um, they have a six point framework, um, for how do you transform things in, you know, a constraint into something useful. They start by moving from victim to neutralizer to transformer. It includes asking propelling questions like linking your bold ambition to that constraint. And then thinking of someone like a Harry Houdini, and then also to activate your emotions around this and not just happiness and, and excitement, but also anger and frustration and discouragement. And when you bring that emotion, that full range, it allows you to turn the constraint into something positive. One of the things I like to do is to ask um, with a constraint on the days that I'm being mature, of course, is uh, why did this happen for me? Not why did this happen to me? And that completely reframes it. Um, and then another way I would think about it just to kind of get our listeners brains thinking about flipping this idea of a constraint being something that holds them back is, is the story of Jaws. Um, Steven Spielberg, you know, he wanted to shoot this film with a mechanical shark and the mechanical shark didn't work. He's now over budget. He's behind schedule. He finally decides that he has to shoot the scenes from the shark's point of view and um, let the music, which we can all sing, every single person who's listening to this can hear it in their head right now and let their imagination do the rest. And so it became this question, or at least it's a question for me of, was Steven Spielberg successful with his film in spite of his constraints or because of his constraints? And as a disruptor for people thinking, okay, I'm going to try something new, or I'm trying to climb my learning curve, whenever you lack resources, um, you're going to get scrappy. And in that scrappiness, you figure out what you do uniquely well, what your strengths are. And because all the doors that you're like, I'm going to walk through this door, they're close to you, you end up building your own door, which is by default taking on market risk or playing where no one else is playing, which is something that you do when you're a disruptor. It reminds me of necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. That's terrific. And it's it's a very counterintuitive thing to bring up so it's 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 very very good to to think about now for there's probably baby boomers and gen xers in this audience whitney what do you what do you have to tell them in dealing with younger generations especially when there's nervousness about delegating quote to the young and inexperienced Hmm. so i would say um with millennials, they're going to come in um, and be at the low end of the learning curve, uh, certainly by age and maybe in domain expertise. And I, I, a couple of thoughts come to mind. First of all, recognize that they don't know what they're doing. Um, they might be very precocious in many ways, but they're new and they don't know how to do it. And give more instructions than you think you need to give. I think one of the big um, 
hazards of whenever we bring someone in new, whether they're a millennial or not, is when they're at the low end of the learning curve, we want them to be able to get up to speed really, really quickly. And we tend to expect people to read our minds. And most people just aren't very good mind readers. And so we need to give lots of really, really good instructions to people and over explain um, so that they can move up that learning curve after six months or nine months on the job. The second thing I would say is to be patient. Meaning um, when someone's new and they're at the loan of the learning curve, they're going to ask a lot of questions like, why do we do it like this? This doesn't make sense. I think there might be a better way. And part of us says, this is fantastic. They're, they're innovating. They're coming up with these fresh ideas. But there's another part of us that feels very threatened by that because they're, they're messing with the status quo that we established because we've been there longer. And yet we really lose out on a huge opportunity for innovation and for improving the processes and the systems and the revenue generating opportunities inside of our organizations when we dismiss those questions and say, just get in line. Um, so my two pieces of advice, again, would be to be patient um, both in terms of when they ask questions and to give those questions serious consideration, and then also to over-explain probably more than we think that, that than we more than we think we should. That's going to equip them to be able to be successful on the job. The latter one's very attractive. One of my uh, let's say mentor figures. He was the former board chair of our little company years ago, and dating him a little bit, he was actually involved as a lead engineer for the for the chipsets which had to be designed for the first four function calculators hmm. he he delegated the entire activity to some fresh outs from college and they were spectacular because they didn't know what they didn't know mm -hmm. so it's it's a very fun story you know, yeah that is great you know lot lots of lots of folks seems to seem to have difficulty delegating and maybe it's maybe it's related to or proportional to competency um, or, or for a sense of perfection, and you had a little, you had a segment in in the book about the getting the kids into college is quite a process these days, and we can condition ourselves to believe that technical perfection is the ultimate goal. But that there's there's hazards with that that search for perfection. Can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. So there are huge hazards, and and it's interesting because just the other day, our daughter, who's a junior in high school, she said, you know, and, and she has straight A's and she wants to get into a good college. But she said, sometimes it bothers me that I'm just constantly managing my life to, to, for the grades, right? So it's just focused on the grades. Um, I think what happens is that um, in our society, when children are young, we are very focused on that technical perfection. So uh, you know, if they behave, good job. If they get an A, you're smart. But by implication, then if you don't get an A, you're dumb. And what happens is that our identity ends up being very, very tied to what we are accomplishing, whether we are succeeding or failure, failing. And it's even worse for any child that is fairly bright because their identity gets even more tied to that. And so what ends up happening now as they grow up and they come into the workforce, they only want to take on competitive risks. They only want to go after projects. They only want to go after jobs. They only want to go after things that are completely scoped out because their sense of um, identity will be tied to, okay, I'll do that, I'll be successful, and therefore I will be a success. 
as opposed to what we really need them to do is to go out and be a disruptor, to play where no one else is playing, to take on market risk, and yet they're not equipped to do that at all because if they go play where no one else is and they make lots of mistakes, then they start to feel like a failure. And so one of, I think, the big tasks for us as adults actually is to unlearn a lot of that and to separate out our identity from who we fundamentally are and um, realize that when we make a mistake, it's not a referendum on our, our sense of self. It's just we made a mistake. It's part of the up and down of disruption. And to, and to say to ourselves over and over and over again, it is shame that limits disruption. It's not failure. And when we can start to be aware of that and tease that out um, and help our children not do it quite so much so that they can unlearn it more quickly, I think we will make a lot of progress toward people being much more creative and innovative in our workplace and in society generally. There's some kind of overlap you just created there where I think you crossed a little bit over into a Brene Brown's territory about shame and also with the scarcity mindset. You know, if we can free ourselves from those things, then all the all the goodness, all the goodness inside has a chance to come out. Oh, you see her influence in my my speaking. Oh, do you? I, she's absolutely an influence. She, I think she's her work's incredible. She's it, it, it's big stuff. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, I'm really trying to get our daughter, who's a junior in college, and we'll have to talk separately about this sometime I'm trying to get her to read her work because because mm. because that that sense of identity and um, I, I think I think really bright straight a frankly female students can often be the worst so, absolutely so the question is oh, well she's in college I was gonna say read it in front of her that seems to work a lot for me well you know <laughs> if it's, I read it, the book in front of them it helps well, you know it's really interesting because I've been tempted to do something similar to at least share some passages with her because I, I want her okay. I want her to look at at my some of the passages in my review so oh I have a suggestion for you yes send her a quote of the day text her a quote my daughter loves that when I just send a one little quote like a quote for you i just so wrote, you can, i yeah. just wrote that down there you go that's right. that's a really there good takeaway go. okay couple more couple more questions here whitney our our leadership excellence courses from that group i told you about are predicated on a leadership philosophy that's centered on values and purpose so my question is how does aligned purpose affect corporate performance in your experience well it does affect it i think it's really important and i think there are a couple of different layers of that aligned values I, I think there's there needs to be this sense of the why of the organization like why and, and not that i think sometimes when we think about the why we think it needs to be a why in a grand or cosmic sense um but i think that there's there's the more sort of quotidian why just like what are we trying to get done here and how are we trying to make a person's life better in in, in the most simple way so i think that that needs to be aligned but i think the other thing is when I think about disruption, um, we need to be aligned with the whys of every single person on our team because there's the why of the organization, but how often is it that we as a boss or as a leader, we don't actually know what the whys are of the people who are working for and with us. And so if we know what those whys are, then we're more likely to know if we want to hire them or not, but also put them in into assignments and on projects that align with their personal why so that they so that we can find this this meeting or this this matchup of uh, of the why of the organization and the why of the individuals and then you start to get a lot of 
a lot of heft and a lot of energy behind and horsepower behind what you're trying to get done inside of your organization. I'm going to borrow that. It's uh, it's it's really nice. One of one of the things that happens in in our leadership courses, I I, I find myself recently saying leadership's not about us. It's about the connections made to other people. And this this why connection that you just offered is a is a great way to do that. So uh, last one about this book. You've been mm-hmm. influenced by and have collaborated with Clayton Christensen, and I'm just curious, how has that relationship influenced you? Oh, well, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's huge. I mean, you see in the acknowledgments that I acknowledge him. I, 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 I discovered all of this when I was still an analyst on Wall Street. I read The Innovator's Dilemma. It helped me understand what I was seeing as an equity analyst, how the projections that I had, you know, my models that I had built around wireless every single time they were beating my estimates um, because they were disrupting wirelines. So that was my first introduction to that. And so then having the opportunity to work with him and co-found an investment firm and to learn from him and spend hours and hours and hours in his office with our team. And then more recently, just having him as a sponsor, it's, it's, he's been a huge influence, both I would say intellectually and, and even I would say more on a spiritual or personal basis. Um, he's just been a, he's, he's a really great man. He, he really is. And I, I think a lot of people are familiar with certainly the innovators dilemma. When I read his work about how will you live your life? The, the, the humility that came out of the book, frankly, just knocked me down mm-hmm. because most people who have had success in their life don't seem to want to expose um, deep questions that they have. And I, I, I honor that. So uh, looking ahead, Whitney, we're, we're really done with the book here, but what projects are you working on now? I think I heard about a third book. <laughs> Why, thank you for asking. Um, yes, I have a book uh, called Build an A-Team that is going to be published with Harvard Business Press on May 1st, and I'm really, really excited about it. Well, so am I. I hope I can get on the, the early reading list. If, yeah. if, it's, if it's anything like Disrupt Yourself, uh, it's going to be another must-read. Oh, well, thank you. And um, for all of your listeners, if if you would like, uh, as I said earlier, you can go to my website, WhitneyJohnson.com backslash a team and download the first chapter so you can get a quick preview of, of what it's about. But but at its, um, you know, just a quick high level view, it, it really builds on the work of Disrupt Yourself, where people would say, okay, I get it. I get it. I want to disrupt myself. But how do I get my boss to let me disrupt myself? Or how do I get my team to? And so this is really um, the answer to bosses and leaders who are saying, I want to use this personal disruption as a human resources strategy and recognize that my people really are strategic. And and what does that look like? And I'll just leave you with three words around that. The mantra needs to be learn, leap and repeat. And when you do that, you're going to be able to ship even more product and because your people are happy and all in, um, you're going to also be a company, a place where people don't want to work, and a boss that people really like working for, which I think, you know, we all want to be a, a great boss. You've been wonderful, Whitney, and I really appreciate you being on the joint cast today. Disrupt yourself. Whitney Johnson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed the joint cast, a positive review and kind word to your friends and colleagues would be most appreciated. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit www.choink.com to sign up for an upcoming Leadership Excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk.